Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Alan Moore and you're listening to Gaelic Games Europe's twice-weekly podcast, This Sunday's Game. As another week passes without Gaelic Games action on the field, we really need to remind ourselves that we are now one week closer to the restart of normality. And to help us along the way, we have two terrific interviewees from Europe, but the island of Ireland. We're going to throw in now in just a moment with Damien O'Mara from RTE Sport, who is going to tell us how the national broadcaster is making the best use of its talent at this time, and of course, his GAA memories. Now, they always say that the best teams and the winning teams start the second half full throttle. And we're going to do just that by welcoming the GAA president, John Horan, onto the field. We're going to get his views on how Gaelic Games' global potential is on track to full realisation and also just how the GAA is sticking by its communities, making the right decisions, as well as leading the way internationally. Now folks, at the end of this podcast, keep your ears peeled because we have a little bit of extra news for you. But first, our sports news roundup. As even more GAA coaches and players urge caution on a return to action, and some, like Claire's Tony Kelly, would prefer to wait until winter, there is a little bit of good news for GAA folk. From May 18th, recreational tennis and golf will be open to the masses, taking that edge off just a little bit. Now, there are dissenting voices as to the GAA stance. For example, Pat Spillane has said that, I think we're being too cautious. You see what we did with the leaving cert? We kicked that can down the road with no plan. And now, look what has happened. I think there is an element of that with the GAA, and I think we need to address it a bit quicker. In the majority who don't agree with him, including the All-Ireland winning captain, Anthony Daly, I think we're going to clear route today, he said, I think we're going to have to see how others get on. Maybe that's an advantage we have. I think the GAA were right to put it down the road a little bit for the time being. There are so many unknowns, but I would still cling to the hope that we will have a 2020 club and championships played now of course we're looking at uh soccer and of course in south korea they were playing games behind closed doors with piped in music maybe a way in the future for the greed is good leagues in england and germany and news of course from brighton hove albion in the english premier league where a third player today has tested positive for covid that's adding into the number of three from fiorentina and one from torino in syria now, of course, we're having to look and see what is going to happen in the um, the championship here at home. Offaly manager, of course, yesterday they should have been throwing in against Carlo in the Leicester Championship, doesn't believe that that match will be happening this year. Mon said that, look, I would rather see it happening that the clubs get first preference. He said, I am not a fan of playing behind closed doors as I don't think there will be any interest in it. That is in reference to uh, the English Premier League and the Bundesliga. Now he says that that there is a safe route back to playing games in 2020, he said, and that will be through the clubs. He says, if we lift the lid and play a club championship, I think that it might take 10 to 12 weeks to run off. He went on to say that the best I could see in intercounty terms would be to try and finish off the league but I can't see them trying to squeeze in a championship into a short space of time. We're going to throw in right away and go to Clontarf in County Dublin to Damien O'Mara. So I'm going to bid a very warm welcome to this Sunday's game to RT Sports' Damien O'Mara. Damien, a very warm welcome this morning. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great to speak with you because... um, 
honestly, we're missing your voice on, on, on Saturdays and Sundays and just for sports updates. How is it then for you that, how are you handling this lack of sport? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit strange, to be honest with you, because um, like a, a lot of us know more than people in most professions. Well, actually, you know, I can't claim to be pe- like people in most professions. The vast majority of us, you develop a love of sport as like a kid or as a teenager or it's handed down to you. And then by some fluke of nature, you become in a position where it becomes your profession. So, um, yeah, I, I can't claim to have like toiled and slogged for years. Like I'm, I'm living the dream in terms of being paid to talk about sports. So it's very strange. Um, and the, the way it's happened, uh, I would do a lot of rugby at the early start of the year. So, you know, you're in the midst of the Six Nations and you're planning for the game against Italy. You're planning for the game against France. And all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of floated with you that these games might not happen. And it seems somewhat ludicrous to us at the time that we could be entering into a situation where games would have to be cancelled. And it's just become so bizarre. We're in a situation where the decision was made a couple of weeks back, once kind of after the Olympics had been called off, that they would largely scale back sports coverage in RTE. So we have um, we have a couple of shadow shifts insofar as... Uh, if big news breaks, there's the opportunity for us to get into the schedule. And we have a, a daily bulletin on uh, Morning Ireland on Radio 1 in the mornings at half eight and on the drive time programme at half five in the afternoon. But beyond that, you know, colleagues working on the 6-1 TV news, beyond that, we the department is pretty much in, in cold storage. And um, I, I think for a lot of people, um, RTE has become more and more prominent in recent weeks because largely to our colleagues in news and current affairs they've done a phenomenal job keeping the show on the road and the amount of output that they have so a lot of us have been redeployed um which i, I know we'll, we'll chat about in a minute but yeah it's it's strange like you know like this weekend we should have been gearing up for the first massive weekend yeah. of the championship um normally i i produce our rugby coverage in it in addition to working on it so like you know we we would have been thinking about the tail end of the Pro 14 season. We would have had maybe provisional plans in place to be in Marseille for a Champions Cup final had one of the provinces got to that point. Uh, my colleague Michael Corcoran, who does all the radio commentaries, uh, certainly would have had one eye now on heading to Australia in July for the summer tour. So we're now in a situation where it's... I, I can't see certain sports coming back at all this year and... I think what sports do manage to come back, the landscape and their appearance is going to be completely different than anything I will ever work on. At the moment, we were chatting to each other. Uh, Darren Frehill, your colleague, was going on air to say about the GAA pushing back to October for a mm. potential championship start. Now, a lot of people, for example, John Mon, uh, the Offaly manager, has said that he doesn't see, um, which should be today, Saturday, the game uh, Offaly Carlo. He doesn't see it being held this year at all. He sees it going next year. Um, what are the chances, Damon, that, that there will be championship this year? I think it's going to be very difficult to get it up and running. And not for a lack of willingness or certainly not for a lack of desire, but you have to look at the various points that have to be put in place in order for competitive games to be able to be played. So you look at a situation where 30 players will start, but you've got a further, whatever, 20 on the bench. You've got backroom staffs. You know, an elite top-level GAA team now by the time you factor in your backroom staff, you're talking about 50 to 60 people yeah. involved in training sessions multiple times a week. Um, 
you know, even there was a piece on the radio away from sport. There was a piece on the radio over here yesterday about how certain businesses are going to be able to get themselves up and running. And one of the businesses they focused on was a gym. And they were making the point about like free weights and the difficulty you would have with sanitizing weights after use. So how are players to do proper gym sessions, managers to do any form of collective training? And, you know, if we were to draw a parallel with, okay, Rugby, obviously, is the most physical sport we have in terms of, of person-to-person contact. But if you look at, at top-level hurling matches, top-level Gaelic football matches, the combative nature of those games, that you need to allow players to get themselves into a situation where not only are they fit enough to play, but that they are conditioned well enough for it to be safe for them to play. So I think if you look at a factor of we have a timeline in place now as to how they're going to try and reopen the country and get back to some semblance of normality i think we're a long long way off where you could potentially have squads training together as groups of 25 30 players you know they're talking about the potential to have players train initially in small groups and then build it up over time but i think the timeline is ambitious in terms of giving players a month to lead into a match you know players are going to want to have to have some kind of competitive minutes under their belt whether that's club games or challenge matches Along the way, I think the GAA made a sensitive, or sensitive, a sensible step, I should say, in terms of they have now controlled the narrative and the discussion around it. That there, there's, there's a great pressure not to try and get the economy back up and running, but there's a great pressure for sports to get up and running because people just need something to be able to watch, something to be able yeah. to have entertain them, you know. And and I think there, there's that side of it that okay, there are people who will switch off at the very mention of sport, and, and that's fine. But for a lot of people, it's something to focus on. It's something emotive to get behind. I think the GAA were sensible insofar as they've taken a lot of the pressure off themselves because there is this great hunger just to get any form of sport back up and running. If I was a betting man, which I'm not, I don't think you're going to have a championship certainly completed in 2020. I wonder, are you going to have a situation where something might be able to get underway November, December, which would then run into next year. You know, the, the, the idea was already floated. Perhaps instead of having the club finals, which were removed from St. Patrick's Day, perhaps you might have All-Ireland finals on St. Patrick's Day next year. I, I, I cannot see there being any chance of a championship in any format that we would know of it in recent years happening in 2020. No, that, that does make sense. A lot of people are talking about even just running the league off till the end of the year and then starting a new next year. Um, Damien, now you mentioned about redeployed. So RTE has very cleverly um, made the best use of their talent. That's including you, of course, and redeployed. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh no, for sure. So, how is it like working in a in a different sphere, a different element within within the organisation? The way we would look at it is that we are like I'm I'm a staff producer first and foremost, and you know, sport is where I, I got into RTE through the sports department, and when producer jobs came up, I was assigned to the sports department. So I've been lucky enough in that regard. But like. All of, just say from, from a television perspective, a lot of our colleagues who would direct the Sunday game or would direct our Champions League coverage have all gone to work in news and current affairs and they were the first people that went. And likewise, broadcast coordinators who would work behind the scenes and a lot of administrative staff who, you know, never get on air and never get in front of a camera or behind a microphone, but are the glue that holds the entire operation together because they do all the planning. Um, so a, a lot of our colleagues very early on in lockdown um, went. Um, 
so yeah, I, I've been redeployed. I'm, I'm, as we speak, I'm working on Arena, which is RT Radio 1's nightly arts and culture program. Uh, a colleague of mine, Greg Allen, has gone to work on Drive Time, which would be the kind of current affairs program in the late afternoon, and Greg early Allen evenings. Associated with golf, of course. Greg, yeah, Greg, Greg would be the voice of all our athletics coverage and the voice of all our golf coverage. And Greg has been at more Olympics than I will ever remember. And, um, you know, again, should be gearing up for a summer of major championships and uh, the Irish Open and gearing up for Tokyo and the Olympic Games later on in the year. Um, do, do you know, it's, it's funny. It's, uh, it's a bit of a challenge because you, you go from the very nature of sport. Like if I'm producing Saturday or Sunday sport on, on Radio 1, you have four hours and you have a rough idea that, okay, Sunday sport, I have a match at two o'clock and I have a match at four o'clock. So I'm okay. You know, that's going to largely fill itself or I have various matches on and there will always be something happening somewhere that you can whip around to. Um, just say a Saturday sport, you have four hours, you do Premier League updates throughout the afternoon. You have a couple of set pieces throughout the program, but largely on an hour to hour basis, you have a rough idea what's going to happen, but some story could break, someone could resign, some big thing, you know, you don't really know where you're going. So we're kind of used to kind of a seedier pants approach to broadcasting that I have a rough idea of what I have, but I don't know what order it's going to go out in. So you're now going into what would be more structured programs and uh, it's, 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 it's interesting. I think from, from my perspective, it's interesting to see how what would be considered to be the mainstream programs in RTE work in terms of different workflows and briefs for presenters and a different level of forward planning and structure than we would be used to. And certainly I, I've only been working on arena for a week, but certainly I'm, I'm looking at ways that they do things. I'm kind of saying, geez, we could, we could do that, this and this and bring that to sport. And likewise, and I, I think maybe from a technological point of view, a lot of how we would use various aspects of technology that are available to us, particularly in the current climate, we, you know, RTE, like a lot of employers, we've brought in social, social distancing uh, restrictions. So we don't have guests in studio anymore. So it's how technology that we would use in sport to get guests in relatively decent broadcast quality anywhere in the country or anywhere worldwide bringing that back to other programs. So yeah, it's, it's been interesting. And I think to be fair to a lot of people, you, you do not, not within the profession, but you know, you, you talk to people and you say to them, oh, I'm working on a general election or I'm working on this program or that program. And they go, but do you work in sport yeah. as if like we're some, as if like we're some kind of Neanderthals who, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not always true. <laughs> Yeah, feed, feed me raw steak and put me in front of a live match and I'm happy. Um, so, yeah, it, like I, I, I must say um, it's, been, it's been a great experience, but it is, it's that little challenge of it's something that you're completely out of your comfort zone because, I, you know, I, I read books, I listen to music, I watch films, but it's, uh, yeah, it's good to challenge yourself. But, it, it's, you know, it's funny. I think a lot, of, a lot of people across the board, this is such a unique situation that we find ourselves in. And you can you can lock yourself up at home and you can be worried about what might happen or you can kind of embrace the opportunities that exist throughout it. And like, it's, it's a dangerous time. It's a scary time, but it's a time that's presented opportunities to some of us. So it's a, yeah, it's a new headspace to be in, but it's very enjoyable. That's good. And that's good. Again, you have to, as everyone says, like, you know, it's, it's a different perspective and you challenge yourself, you come out of it better on your side of it. So that definitely sounds like it. Um, what would be your standing GA memories from childhood to, to now? What, what would you most remember? Do, do you know what the strange thing about Dublin doing the five in a row is that despite the fact that I grew up in Dublin, born and bred in Dublin, and like Jack McCaffrey would be a club mate of mine in Clontarf, 
I was so emotionally detached from that because I was, I, so, you know, a lot of people might listen to our coverage and we have our commentary, but we have a sideline reporter. And as soon as Dublin had completed the five in a row, I was more fixated on, I need to get Jim Gavin on the radio. I need to get, <laughs> you're not going to get Stephen Cluxton on the radio, but my, my headspace initially became completely almost robotic in terms of, I need to get A, B, C, and D on the radio and get them on the radio really quick because it was that, that, that magnitude of what they'd achieved. So the four in a row and the five in a row, I recorded both live programs and I went back and watched them two or three days later. So I, I'm probably one of the few people born in Dublin who was in Crow Park on that day. I couldn't tell you half of what happened in that match because my head was in other places. So I, I'll go back a little bit. My... Um, I have a very vivid recollection. My uncle used to work in Arnott's. He was in a management position in Arnott's. And we used to get, like, the, when Arnott's sponsored Dublin, we used to have the Dublin jerseys before they were officially released. So you'd be walking around Clontarf like big dog in town because you'd have the new Dublin jersey. And I remember we used to be able to get decent enough tickets uh, to Dublin matches back in the day. And I can't remember why, but I have a very, very vivid recollection of being on the canal end for the last of the four in a row against Meath in 91. I know that last match fell on my birthday. And I have this, if you remember, like what, what ultimately became the, the goal that changed the match. Of course. That, like, yeah. Dublin, were, Dublin were on the attack in the, the corner where the Cusick stand meets the canal. And Mead basically broke the whole length of the pitch and scored to break Dublin's hearts. And I, I remember even as a kid thinking, why doesn't someone just foul someone, just kill this game? So that, that, that four in a row in 91 would be very vivid. You had a Tyrone Tyrone mentality already sort of set up like, you know. I I couldn't understand, like even at 10 years of age, I couldn't understand how a team in terms of game management were allowed to run the length of the pitch and work. Okay, brilliant move. Yeah. But like if that was was the Dublin team of 2020, you would have more fouls conceded in the last minute of that match than... (laughs) Anyway, that's... All right, we'll move past that. We'll move past that. My family family are all um, uh, Tipperary born and bred. And I used to sell programs in, in Crow Park as a kid growing up. And I have a, a really, like the 1989 All-Ireland Hurling Final, which I would have only been eight years of age between Dublin or Tipperary and Antrim. Like I, I would have grown up in a household where if you'd have given me the opportunity as a kid to see Dublin win a football or Tipperary win a hurling, I would have picked Tipperary winning the hurling yeah. time after time. And that like 89 for me was the first time that it felt like a team that I really was invested in had won an All-Ireland because I was obviously too young for Dublin successes in the early 80s. Um, so I, I, remember, I remember selling programmes uh, over at the Nally stand in Crow Park and then managing to blag my way around to the Cusick stand, which is where my dad used to steward, and watching Tip win the All-Ireland with the old chain, like wire fence at the front of the old Cusick stand. And um, Aidan Ryan the tip forward got pushed into it at one stage and really badly damaged his hand off like a lump of fence I, it's bizarre like I can remember that moment more than I can remember any moment in the match itself um, so they'd be they'd be my two standouts Dublin winning the four in a row in terms of a broadcasting moment was very special because I just remember afterwards getting this really open interview with Jim Gavin which doesn't happen all that often and no. I, I was fully convinced after the four in a row that he was going to walk away. And then I was equally even more convinced after the five in a row with the nature of the interview he gave that day as well. And Do you know, like the, the, when they, they beat Tyrone to win the four in a row, I had, like, 
there's a long, long established, you know, Tyrone don't do interviews with RTE and, and we won't talk about that because yeah, it's been yeah. discussed by so many people. But I won't say that I agonised, but I certainly thought over the course of that week, I'm going to end up interviewing Jim Gavin in victory or defeat after the match. And I had this idea in my head that I wanted to ask Jim Gavin something that would throw him off course ever so slightly, that you might try and get him to open up a little bit because of the nature. He's, he's so clinical and, you know, people yeah. say robotic, which I think is unfair. He's just so engrossed in the moment. And I had this idea that there must be a moment in these days that he, it's, he, he wants to savour for himself, that there is the moment that he enjoys for posterity. So anyway, you interviewed him about the match and, you know, you've come back and Tyrone were on top and you beat him and everything else. Got all that. Jim, I said, what's the moment for you that you enjoy, that you want to have in the memory bank, that you make sure that you savour? And he hit me with, it's about the service, not the self. And I was so deflated because I'd spent the week thinking, what can I do that's a little bit different, that I might get a good soundbite? And he pulled the carpet out from underneath me straight away. So I'll give you, yeah, 91 and 89 as a fan and 2018 as a professional. You understand what you mean when you say like when you're working on it? Because when, when look, to Moscow won the, the Premier League title after what, 16 years of here in Moscow and working on it, couldn't really enjoy it until afterwards. And everyone's dancing around, the fans are yeah. singing, just kind of going, okay, now I have to try and grab this guy for an interview. I have to do this. Yeah. It's very, very different. The, 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 one, the one for me in particular, like I, I've been lucky over the last couple of years that, okay, you've got Dublin making history and you're there. And there, there is a pressure because I'm very conscious of radio that, okay, television on the Monday or the Tuesday after an All-Ireland final will tell you straight away how many people have watched it. We don't have that luxury in how radio listenership is measured over here. But I'm very conscious that there are people who can't make it to the match. There are people in nursing homes. There are people all over the world. And we know this because on those Sundays, the amount of emails we get, and back in the day, RT used to broadcast, like up until the relatively recent decades, say, RT used to broadcast the match on shortwave. And you'd get these brilliant emails from like all over Africa in particular are the ones that really stick out for me but you're kind of thinking to yourself the one for me was when Limerick won the hurling a couple of years back having not won it since the early 70s and I was like I have to get John Kiley yeah and John Kiley was so emotional that he started crying on air kind of think to yourself like this 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 will never happen anywhere else I, I will never go to a Champions League final and have a manager cry on air <sighs> you know like it's so unique in terms of what, what John Kiley had been through with that squad from some of them in their early teens the whole way through. And, you know, Dolores O'Reardon had passed away and the Cranberries were blaring through the PA in Crow Park. And, but you do get into that situation where you fully appreciate that you're in the middle of something really special. But then you're saying to yourself, okay, I need to, it's going to sound very, you know, self-worthy to say, like, I need to make this even more special for people. But you are conscious that, this is such a special occasion for so many people that you're trying to bring them into the situation. And, you know, I, I remember that, that afternoon, you know, John Kiley broke down on air. Uh, Shane Dowling, who'd been on the panel, who had been hammered out the gate in their previous All-Ireland final appearance. And in the middle of the interview, he was like, to be honest with you, I'm going to talk to you later because I just want to enjoy this. And he walked off after one answer. And you're kind of saying to yourself, that's perfectly, like where that would be completely ignorant in a lot of sports. Of and he'd be lambasted for it that's actually perfectly acceptable and it's actually to be admired in the GAA because it just reminds you that this is about so much more than sponsors and media and endorsements and everything else. It's about going and savoring those moments with people that hadn't experienced it for whatever number of years it was. And you know, the people that you have played with from the age of five or six upwards. So it's, yeah, it's completely unique. 
Listen, Damien, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant speaking with you, and I hope that you'll join us again with some better news when we, when we have sort of a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. It would be my pleasure anytime. Thank you so much. Uh, that was Damien Amaro of RT Sport. And uh, okay, then we're going to go next to the president of the GAA, John Horan. Okay, and as I mentioned earlier on, we have a great honour that we have the president of the GAA, John Horan, joining us today. John, you're very welcome to this Sunday's game. Thanks, Alan. Delighted to join up with you. Now, I know it's, it's tough now because on this whole podcast, we've had, uh, we'll have three, or, or three Dubliners on it, David O'Mara, yourself and myself. Um, so we're not going to call about five in a row or the potential six in a row. Um, but I just want to ask you, first of all, as, as head of a, a, a huge organization, a global organization, how tough has this coronavirus been, first of all, in Ireland and then with the overseas units? Look, it, it, it's a cause for concern for the organization because uh, like ultimately, you know, we're a games organization and it's all about playing games. And when you reach a point where you can't actually do what is your core activity, well, then that becomes a great frustration. But there's been huge challenges out of it, you know, in terms of the communities in which the GA is based back here in Ireland and, and I'm sure overseas where people have rallied to support the elderly within their community or those who cannot conduct a normal life in the context of shopping and that. Been huge work going on here. Like they did a survey last week of the clubs, 20,000 members of the GAA are servicing 35,000 households with, you know, pharmacy requirements, shopping requirements and other things going on. So like there's a huge support network actually after kicking off here. There are challenges, you know, there's big financial challenges. And then I'd have a concern for people overseas, like if they're out of work, what is the social welfare support system for our members overseas? But I know in, in certain areas, people have rallied around those and uh, just hope, look, everybody keeps safe and we get through this. But look, you know, we just have to unfortunately park the games for a while because playing games is not just worth the risk to think that any GAA event or venue or anything would ever be categorized as a cluster for COVID-19 because if that happens and it passes on to the community and we lose a family member of somebody or a member of our organization, that to me would be a very, very sad day. This is the difference now that I've been finding it. And as you know, I work with uh, sports radio as well here in Russia. And, you know, the, the, the rush for, for example, the English Premier League in football or the Bundesliga in Germany or even Syria and Italy, they're all rushing to get back into business. And they're not talking about the welfare of players. And of course, they're talking about giving a bit of a lift to the fans and to the nation. But it comes down to the bottom line. Why is the GAA being different in this? And it's not being obstinate. It's like, is it just looking out for the greater good, a, a sort of a duty of care to the community rather than sort of losing a few euros? I think it's a case of priorities. And I think our priority is the well-being of all our people. I'm not saying the others are being careless, but they are prepared to take a certain element of risk. But I think one other major aspect and difference between us and a lot of them is our amateur status. Because we're amateurs, because our players go back to live with their families, because they go back into work environments, we cannot take that extra risk. Um, whereas in these, some of these professional sports, look, they are looking at cocooning players away and then letting them actually play. But you can see already some of the professional outfits that have gone back in various sports have had small outbreaks of COVID within their actual training camps. So, you know, it's not simple, but we're trying to obviously keep a balance here and 
you know, some people were disappointed that we continued to shut down on GAA premises. But like, there was a few aspects to that. One, we didn't want them to develop into clusters. But two was we wanted to take the worry and the responsibility of the executive members of every club that they didn't have to marshal the venue. Like the notion of letting people train in groups of four, who's going to marshal that? And when there's four going to creep into six, who's going to be doing the count? And then all of a sudden you have the whole team training and then you have people gathering around and then, you know, things start getting back to normal and people start dropping their guard and then, bang, you get it, start to get a spread within clubs. So I think the club executives throughout the country were happy that we actually continued to enforce the shutdown. And look, you know, it's, it's not a nice decision to have to make. It's not nice news to have to deliver. But I think ultimately you have to be responsible. Like lots of people can have opinions. I think you should this, I think you should that. But I think we're getting the balance right. People are calling for a complete shutdown for the year. But like that would knock a lot of hope out of people. And it would also then lead to a complacency in terms of getting yourself prepared and ready to actually reopen. So that's why we're doing it in the phase basis and manner that we're actually doing it. And, and I, I think we're actually getting that call right. No, it does seem, because I remember when in, in Europe, when, we, when the decision was taken in Ireland, we looked very, very closely at that. We assessed, because we were across 22 countries in Europe, and it's very, very difficult because what fits uh, in you know, Germany will not fit in France and in Russia and so on and so forth. But as we're seeing the numbers rise across the board, we're kind of glad now that the general lead was taken by Tony and the, the management committee and the county committee to, to do that. Um, John, in, in looking at that, I mean, of course, you're talking about the amateur status and, of course, but a lot of the, the GA players, be they in, you know, ladies football, camogie, Gaelic football, hurling, and a lot of them are frontline workers. So they're doctors, nurses, uh, ambulance drivers. How difficult is that going to be then to return to normality for GGAA when, like, these people, you know, they they have a sense of uh, a, a certain effect of trauma or, or post-traumatic stress after all this. What can the GA do to, to support these people? Well, I think the actual outlet of actually, if we can get the games back, would actually give them that kind of, you would nearly say a distraction and, 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 and a different avenue to challenge their energy. And it's like, you know, and you would have to have huge sympathy for these people on the front line. Like the stats are shown that there is a large proportion of people on the front line being affected by it. But I think, you know, the testing is getting better, the systems are getting better, the triaging in hospitals and all that. And I think the, the, the game of, you know, protecting healthcare staff, I think, has improved considerably. And I think there's an awareness there. And I think once testing and tracing improves, I think then, you know, ultimately, like, you know, we have to get life back to some normality in terms of the economy and look, sport can come after that. But like, you know, we have to get people back working, you know, the economics of it all. And we may have to live and be careful about this virus rather than have a, an immediate cure. But like, if there's a, if some people are saying a vaccine in 12 to 18 months, like, the world wouldn't sustain itself to be in the present status that it is at the moment. So look, we may have to come back and, and do it with risk, but I don't think playing sport is worth the risk if we feel, you know, people can exercise, they can walk, they can play in small groups where they're sure they're safe playing with people. The actual getting back to competitive games. And as I said to someone the other day, you know, you can put it into three categories. We as an association need to get back because financially this is tearing us apart. Like we reckon at the end of the year, here in Ireland alone, the organization will be down at least 50 million. You're talking about a loss for Crow Park and the stadium of 25 million, and the rest of the clubs, counties, and provinces will be probably down another 25, 30 million. 
that's why we need to get back. We want to get back because we love our games and we all want it as our life blood for the whole summer. But we can't do it. And, and that's the unfortunate thing. Despite having a strong need and a really strong want, it's just something we can't do because it's not safe to do it, you know. Again, as you brought up um, earlier, that a lot of the professional leagues, of course, they have to pay players and then the attendant staff and so on. But a lot of them have not even taken a step towards what the GAA have done, where almost immediately you opened up Crow Park as a, as a testing centre. Why was that decision taken, John? Well, it just seemed the absolute natural thing to do. Like, you know, we always pride ourselves to be a community-based organisation and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very simple decision. And Crow Park as a venue was ideal because it had the parking area for people to line up before they went in. It had the tunnels for those working on it to be sheltered out of the rain. So it was a very natural venue. Other venues were set up by setting up tents and gazebos and that for the actual staff to step in out of it and whatever. But it was an interesting one, actually. I had a knock on the door there about about a month ago and um, a chap from across the road is there and he says to me, John, do you mind me asking you something? And I says, no, we're great. And he said, there's a friend of mine from AO living in Wales and he's involved in rugby over there. And he's absolutely mesmerized about the impact GA as an organization is having here in Ireland on the community. And he's wondering, is there any way he could find out about it? And I said, leave it with me. So I got on the phone, Colin Regan, who's coordinating a lot of that work in the community in Crow Park, rang your man in Wales, gave him all the information. And my neighbor was just blown away to think that, you know, his friend rang him from Wales. What's going on in Ireland? But he was able to meet someone from the GAA who was able to get someone to give all the advice back over to the Welsh rugby people. This is how we do it within our communities because obviously we know rugby is strong within the communities in Wales. But like, they actually came to the GAA looking for the ideas to actually work it out like, you know. I mean, it's a great sense of, a sense of pride. And even here in Russia, they showed it on Russian TV. And they got the name of Crow Park wrong. So I wrote to them, asked them to correct it, and they corrected it. But it was, it was one of those things where it, there was that sense of pride. Say, God, I know that I've played there. I was there just a few months ago. You know, do you think it is the, that, that sense of pride in, in our sports, pride in our community, that the GAA now is... As a, this is now in a global context that is growing very, very quickly around the world. Do you think it's that kind of pride in our games that when Irish people go abroad, we, we bring it with us? And that's one question, do we bring it with us? And second, um, when you've been traveling abroad, what have you noticed? Because you've been to Europe many times before when you were with Leinster. What have you noticed uh, when you've been in Europe, for example? Well, like, the one and obvious thing that I find is that... Um, Irish people gravitate to the Gaelic Games set up in all these cities throughout Europe and throughout the world. And you come across people who actually didn't play Gaelic Games when they were in Ireland, right? They probably played soccer or rugby or no particular sport. But when they go overseas, they want that Irishness. And that Irishness is given to them by actually getting the opportunity to get involved in Gaelic Games overseas. And then it's very obvious that everybody in the communities supports everybody else and looks out for people. Like, you know, when a tragedy hits an area like an explosion or an earthquake or anything like that, you immediately see that trial of support and engagement through the whole GAA network. And look, it's, it's regularly remarked upon by the Department of Foreign Affairs that key to the Irish link overseas is that GAA link, that 
people from Ireland and they link into the sport activity and they link into actually playing our games and it keeps it all together and it gives that community support, like you know what I mean? And then it gives people that extra bit of contact with people from home, like and you get settled down. Like I mean, anytime someone's gone overseas, like and just give examples, like a friend of mine's son went to Australia, he's John, would you know someone? And I said, Yeah, contact that guy. And he landed and within two days he had his job. And he had a, a job coaching a, a ladies' football team over there. Like, and that's it. By just you know, there, there's the name. Ring your man, and, and it kicks off. And like that, that's a story that's replicated throughout the whole world in yeah. Europe and you know Asia, Australasia, America, and whatever. Like you know, and people just look out for each other. And I suppose it is that Irish nature that you know we know over our history how many people have emigrated, and we know that when they do, that people are there to always look after them. So it's. It's nearly an ingrained thing in Irish people that you look after people overseas. You know? For your overseas development, you were one of the, the main movers um, to setting up the, the, the World GAA Committee and the initiative. I, I think it was meant to be quite soon the Convention or Congress taken on it for, for the World GAA. How important was it, for example, at Congress that it was put forward that there would be the change in the, in the law or in the statutes that it would be GAA looks after the global game how important was that well, for, for ga yeah that that that's something that probably wasn't appreciated fully at home here but i certainly became aware of it from my travels to all the different units and listening to people that they found it hard to make an impact locally because um the ga's rule book and that created an image that it was a national organization from ireland with a few splinters around the world rather than that it was an organization that had a world impact so and I knew that, you know, people in different countries were going to the local authorities looking for venues, looking for financial support and other things. And it just wasn't forthcoming because our rule book was letting us down. And it was a matter of language rather than anything else. But there was a nervousness, I know, back home here in Ireland for people who didn't fully understand it. What are we seeing here and what's going on? But um, no, I think it was a necessary step and a progressive step. And look... I look back at my presidency and look at some of the, you know, changes that happened in my time. And that'll be one important one, I think, from an international dimension. No, I, I, in a full agreement with that, I mean, we, we, we saw, we've seen ourselves in Europe um, where probably over half of the people playing Gaelic games are not Irish. You know, they're either yeah. local French. I mean, in, in France, basically they have clubs with no Irish involved at all, but they absolutely love the game. And you saw that yourself. And that's, I want to step sort of backwards, uh, not quite a year to the Reynolds uh, GA World Games down in Waterford and, of course, the finals in Crow Park. How proud of you, were you of, of the World Games? And second of all, what was the, the main takeaways that you got from The whole organisation, the venue, I think anybody that was involved in it was blown away. I think the city of Waterford were blown away by the whole thing. I think even the way it was embedded, it had been previously in Dublin, and I think it got lost in Dublin. But by being in Waterford and by the engagement and the twinning with clubs in Waterford, really gave it a kind of a feel of, you know, we're all in this together. I know Waterford were really proud of it, and I know they're mad keen to get it back again, you know, the next time round in whatever, two years' time. But uh, to me, it was huge. But then to go to Crow Park and see, you know, uh, the international games, but also to see the Irish teams coming home and they getting the chance to play in Crow Park. Like, the emotion that triggers in... I know the international people... Who player games love God the idea of playing in a big stadium, but for the Irish people who have emigrated to come back to Ireland and play to get a chance to actually have a game in Crow Park, the emotion that that triggers in them is huge, and I know that 
And, and that's important. And funny enough, well, it's the first games we're in Abu Dhabi. I know that now people feel getting home and getting the chance to play the finals in Crow Park is really a, an attractive carrot in the whole thing. And people are prepared. And I always say it, and I'll continue to say it to everybody, I have such respect for everybody that plays our games overseas because they dip their hands in their own pockets to go training. They dip their hands in their own pockets to get venues. They dip their hands in their own pockets to travel. It's not that they're being pampered and they're getting sponsored or anything like that. That it, They do it because they love it, but it is a personal cost to them. And I always respect that because I, I learned that lesson back in Calgary in the early 80s when I was over there and they were flying down to play a match in San Francisco and we were having barbecues to raise money. But sure, all we were doing was putting our own money into the whole kitty yeah. as we were having the barbecue. Like We weren't getting outsiders coming in to fund us or anything like that and you know okay we were having the crack but ultimately we were raising a few bob but we were raising it out of the pockets of the lads involved in the team itself and no one more like you know it, it is something that you, you brought that, that, that chance to play in Crow Park now I've been lucky of course going to school in Dublin and getting a chance to play in Crow Park as a primary school kid and you know you yourself had teams from Vincent's playing in Crow Park uh, do you think that we, we don't quite understand the power that Crow Park has for in, in the Irish kind of um, folk memory because it is something kind of magical. I, I'm not going to compare it to Mecca. That's a completely different story altogether. Yeah, no, no. It's huge. And like, you, you see it with kids. And like, we're very conscious of that. Like, I mean, the level of activity on the pitch in Crow Park in comparison to, say, Soccer Stadium in England, it's just no comparison. Like, you could have up to 70 days activity on the pitches in Crow Park like when I was chairman of coaching the games in Leinster, we had the um, Leinster go game days, like, and we introduced it at under eights because we said, right, we could get six pitches on the pitch if we used under eights, right? And in t- every year since then, over the two day period, two thousand kids get the opportunity to play in Crow Park. Like you see, parents taking the day off work, you see grandparents coming up. It's just a complete and utter buzz for people, for kids to get there. Like my older lad who went on actually to have an interest in athletics rather than Gaelic games, he still talks about the day he played his game in Crow Park when he was seven, eight years of age. Like, you know what I mean? And no, it has that uh, infectiousness about people. And I think, as I said at Congress, like, you know, Crow Park and its relationship with the GA. As the final whistle blows on this Sunday's game, I'd like to thank Damian O'Mara and John Horan for joining us. And some good news. John will be back with us on Wednesday for a little bit of a longer chat, including just what influence he had on Kenny Cunningham's footballing career. Yes, that Kenny Cunningham. How he sees his legacy holding up in the GAA and also what he wants to see in the growth of Gaelic games at home and abroad. Until then, take care of yourselves, each other, and speak to you on Wednesday. Thank you.